0: if we haven't met and I do hate being bound here by the I'm gonna do my best to stay put can't move with the mic this morning Uh, hello to those of you there are some people online again thanks thanks tech team for setting that up and there might even be a few people in the sanctuary this morning so we're spread out all over the place but we're gathered in the name of Jesus I'm gonna start with a story I get a devotional I've limited myself as a pastor to just one devotional otherwise I could spend all week just reading devotional after devotional but This came up a few weeks ago, and this little story, it kind of fit with what we're going to talk about today. There's a guy named David St. James. He's a caretaker who maintains the sacristy of the Church of the Holy Cross in Midtown Manhattan. St. James locked the church on Friday afternoon, but when he returned on Saturday morning, a 200-pound plaster sculpture of Jesus had disappeared from a cross near the entrance of the church. What upset the caretaker of the church most was not that thieves had stolen the statue of Jesus, but that they had not taken the cross with it. (laughs) We don't know why they took just him, St. James said. We're just at a loss. We figure if you want the whole crucifix, take the whole crucifix. These people decided we're going to leave the cross and take Jesus. The devotion writer went on to say the theft of the Jesus sculpture from the Manhattan Church in 2003 Seems to be a metaphor that captures how many contemporary people approach Christian faith. We want Jesus, but we don't want his cross. For many, Jesus represents victory, strength, power, abundance, and joy. Qualities affirmed by our culture and sought by followers of every faith, even by those with no faith at all. Jesus' cross, on the other hand, is a symbol of defeat, of weakness, of pain, and of sorrow. I think what What's written here is true, but as it turns out, I don't think it's just contemporary people. I don't think things have changed that much in 2,000 years, and it's why we're doing this. Well, one of many reasons we're doing the series that we're doing right now. It's called The Cruciform Life, a life shaped by the cross. We're journeying through Second Corinthians where Paul is again and again and again defending his gospel, his ministry to the Corinthian church. We're going to pick up in chapter four we're going to cover a fair amount of ground though i'll try to keep it a little shorter than normal because we're outside and i think sometimes that affects attention span a little bit but we'll wrap up chapter four where paul will continue to talk about the weakness of his ministry as evidenced in the cross and as chapter four ends and we begin chapter five we're going to see why paul is okay with the weakness of his ministry it's because of the strength of his god Because of the strength of God that is evidenced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we've been doing in this series is talking about the the cruciform life. And I've been trying to present to you that as a Christian, as someone who is a follower of Jesus, the highest standard of beauty is Jesus Christ on the cross, arms stretched out, welcoming the broken and lost world into his loving family. We've been talking about cruciformity as the true standard of beauty, but as we've been journeying through this, I've been trying to remind us from time to time as we read Paul that that Paul's going to boast in his weakness, that he is weak because he follows a crucified Messiah, but Paul is aware, as we all would be aware, that the cross all by itself, just the cross in itself alone is ugly. The cross itself was invented by human beings as, a, as an instrument of evil, as an instrument of death, of torture, of pain. But what makes the cross beautiful is that God willingly subjects himself to the cross for you and I. And then, again, this is not some weak God with no, no plan at all. It is a God who knows what he's doing, who is so powerful that he overwhelms death itself with his life. And that is screamed to all of us through the resurrection of Jesus. And what Paul has been doing and will continue to do in this letter all the way to the end is that he talks the talk. He's been preaching a crucified Messiah. But Paul also wants the Corinthians to see that he walks the walk. And that he knows he's walking a weakness ministry because his God is so strong it doesn't matter. Paul basically says, yeah, I know I talk about a crucified Messiah, but I also walk, I carry my own cross, and I walk in that weakness. So I'll kind of read through the text in two sections. The first section will be a little slow, uh, shorter, and the, the second section will be a little longer. I'll start by reading 1 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 12. You can follow along in your Bibles or on your phone, or you can just listen. Uh, verse 7, Paul is pretty much going to say everything he wants to say. <laughs> He says, we now have this light shining in our hearts. And if you just look back a verse, if you were with us last week, he's talking about the light that shines in our hearts when we look into the face of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the exact representation of God himself. And when we look into the face of Jesus, we see the face of God. That's why we sing that Jesus is the center of it all. He says, we have this light shining in our hearts. We have looked into the face of Jesus. But we ourselves, we are like fragile clay jars, (laughs) I mean, these fragile, they break all the time. They're ordinary. Even if you pay attention to archaeology, these things were everywhere. These, these fragile, just weak jars of clay. Paul says that's what we are, but, but, but we are containing this great treasure. The good news of Jesus, this life that Jesus provides, us, forgiveness, this mercy, this love. And Paul says, again, as I've been saying, this makes it clear that our great power is from God. It's not from us. It's from God and not from ourselves. And he goes then to lean into his weakness. And this is a great passage just to reflect on. Again, something that that maybe the Cole family and some of their co-workers would understand in a way that we don't even always understand here in America. He says, we're we're pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. If we were inside, if you were sitting closer, I, I would have had... I thought about getting out an aluminum can. If you apply pressure to an aluminum can, if you smash it down and then you change the circumstances, you remove the pressure, that can remains crushed. (laughs) You're not going to use it to hold liquid again. But if you have a rubber ball, a squishy rubber ball, and you apply pressure, you step on it, you squeeze it as tight as you can, and then you change the circumstances and you let go, that thing just bounces back to the way it was. Paul says, we're not aluminum cans. We are, we are squishy rubber balls. that it, it doesn't matter how much pressure you put on us, we, we will not be crushed. We'll pop right back. He says we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. I mean, think about all that we've walked through as a, as a global community in the last three or four years. A lot of conf- confusion. We've, we've been perplexed. But in Christ, there's no reason to be driven to despair. Paul says, and he knows this from his apostolic ministry, we are hunted down. We're we're thrown in prison. Turns out that's still happening today. We're thrown in prison because we follow Jesus. But throughout history, we know that we are never abandoned by God. Even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. We have nothing to fear. And he says, we get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. I mean, just think of those movie scenes where somebody comes in with a big old right undercut hits you in the chin, and you, in slow motion, you fall backwards. You're aware of your weakness. You've been hit. You've been knocked back. But you hit the ground, and you're wait. Like, wait, I can get up again. <laughs> I'm not destroyed. That wasn't a knockout blow. Uh, the world can do whatever. Modern-day Babylon, we like throw whatever it wants at us, and we're going to be okay. Because our God is a God who has overwhelmed death with his life, swallowed up, as we'll see, death with life. Verse 10, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Again, I I talk to talk, Paul says, but I'm also walking the walk. I know the pattern. I've seen the pattern. Jesus made it clear. It's cross and then resurrection. It's death and then life. If you want to gain the whole world, you gain your soul, you have to lose yourself to gain it. You don't try to seize the world. then, Then you lose yourself. That's what Jesus says. And Paul says, I'm just walking in that. Verse 11, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus. And if you were with us from the beginning of the series in chapter 1, Paul said, I thought I was going to die. I had a sentence of death. I knew my life was over and then God saved me. Paul says, I know what it means to be in danger, to be on the cusp of death. It's because we serve Jesus. But we do this so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. I embrace the weakness. Because then God is revealed for who he is. Paul says, so we live in the face of death. This is part of his apostolic calling. And this has resulted in eternal life for you. He's talking to the church in Corinth. This is what Paul is trying to help them see. I'll say a note of hope quickly. If you pay attention to what Paul is saying, if you, if you sit with these verses, if you think, of what, what would it mean to be squeezed but not crushed, right? If you get to know God in this way, it will give you an unyielding, unbending confidence that even if in... And we take hardship seriously here across you, but even if you're in the midst of them, God is with you. That nothing can stamp you out because you've been stamped by the glory of God. That in times of upheaval and even uncertainty... Maybe, just maybe, they become an opportunity for grace. That if you and I can learn to release some of the fear that we carry, if we can learn to accept our weakness and some of our limitations, maybe, just maybe, these moments of trial become moments to see and know God like never before. And you begin to accept your own weakness, but then you glory in the strength of God that he provides. That's a bit of what Paul is saying. But I want to spend a few more minutes talking about what, what would it mean for you and I here across you to talk the talk and walk the walk, to live to live a cruciform life of beauty and embody it, to, to look in the mirror and know that's who we are. That's who we are. And my wife and I have, I mean, part of the reason I use this language is my wife and I have adopted this language of cruciform. We collectively believe that Jesus on the cross is the definition of beauty and we use it as an adjective from here to there, and in the last month, we have been talking a bit about cruciform parenting. I mean, it's, it's our, your circumstances might be different, but we have a 13-year-old in our house, and if you know anything about teenagers, they like to assert themselves. It's part of their development. I accept this fact as a parent because we all go through it, but it's annoying and frustrating. <laughs> And when your kid is so sure that they're right, sometimes it's hard to watch the people you love have to learn the hard way. Amen. I got an amen for that one. Amen. Well, Kami and I wrestle with this because we want to guide Jay into life. I mean, mean, you're a parent. You love your kid. You want them to live well, but we struggle with how to get this kid who has his own idea of what is good and not good, and he's growing in independence and assertiveness, how do you guide him well? And because we have been trained in modern-day Babylon, and as we've been talking about in the last couple of series, because we've picked up tools from Babylon, sometimes Kami and I default. We know that we can manipulate and control our son's behavior if we use a little bit of shame, a little bit of fear, and a little bit of guilt. I probably do more about shame and fear. Kami probably does a little bit more with guilt and fear. It's a little bit of our stories. It's where we default. We learned it in modern-day Babylon, and we can just fall back into it. And the problem is, for Kami and I, It actually seems to work in the moment. A little bit of shame and a little bit of fear and a little bit of guilt in the moment can manipulate and control our 13-year-old to do what we want him to do. But it feels so ugly. I mean, especially in those moments when Kami and Jay and I are in the room and I default because I'm tired or Usually it's something else that's bothering me and I just end up taking it out on my son. But but when I use shame or fear to get him to do what I want him to do, it feels ugly. I just know it's ugly. Sometimes Kami and my loving wife was, Jeff, that was that was ugly. <laughs> I know, but it worked. I know, but it's ugly. And what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to, he's going to go even beyond. He's going to look into, we'll go there next. He's going to look into eternity to help us understand the beauty of this treasure that we carry in these jars of clay. I mean, Kami and I will look into eternity, but sometimes we just look 30 years down the road. I mean, if Kamie and I primarily use shame, fear, and guilt to control and manipulate our teenage son, I, we'll do it sometimes because we're broken people. And in all honesty, in God's good work of grace, my son needs to learn how to forgive too. I mean, we're not perfect. But if we primarily use shame, fear, and guilt to manipulate and control him, in 30, I know, because I've, I've experienced this, and I listen to you guys. Like, I, as, if, if we primarily use shame, fear, and guilt to, par, to parent our son, in 30 years, he's going to look in the mirror, and he's going to say, I'm not enough. I've never been good enough. What's wrong with me? What do I do? I, how can I prove my... I don't want Jay to be 35 years old and say I'm not enough. I want him to look in the mirror with a humble confidence. An understanding I am... My name is Jay Kinnett. I'm the son of Jeff and Kamie Kinnett. I'm a child of God and I'm deeply loved and forgiven. I know my value. And out of that, I know my purpose. I have great purpose in this world. I know who I am. I, I know that if I can learn how to love as Jesus loved me, then then my son has a much better chance of looking in the mirror and knowing he's valued. And with What do we say? With nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to prove, and no one to please. Because he knows who he is. You say, well, what does cruciform parenting look like, Jeff? I don't know. I'm still learning. I'm a disciple too. I'm learning. But I know the standard is beauty. is, Is Jesus on the cross? And I know it has a lot to do with how Jesus has loved me. I get to love my son. So, I mean, whatever you're saying, some of you are parents, some of you aren't. But, but, but be thinking through, where is God inviting you to have a little bit more cruciform beauty? When we talk about conviction. We confessed our sins at the beginning of the service and the call to worship in a bit. Where, where, where is the spirit of God just as ugly in here? I mean, when held up to the beauty of the cruciform Jesus, that's ugly. Where, where is God at work in your life? And sit with Jesus and get to, what did we say last week? Sit with Jesus and, and let his beauty reflect upon you. You, you say, well, well I'm, I'm new to church. What does love look like? Well, pick up your Bible. Check out 1 Corinthians 13. That's a good place to start. Check out Romans 12. Try Colossians 3. I mean, read through the New Testament. Start in the Gospels. Across view, we understand love, not by the way our culture might define it, by what we see in Jesus. Jesus Christ, I said last week, is perfect theology. He's the definition of love. He is love incarnate. Get to know Jesus. Discipleship is learning from Jesus. And then we live like him. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to talk the talk and walk the walk. We're, we're trying to be cruciform parents because we believe it's beautiful. <laughs> and we believe the fruit of it. Oh. A lot of the Babylonian tools, yeah, they work right now. But, but the pain that it causes in the future, it's not worth it. It's not worth it for the treasure that we have. All right, I'm going to read a little bit more now. We're going to kind of get through to chapter 5, verse 10. So hang with me here. Picking up in verse 13, Paul continues his defense. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus. That's really what I'm going to hone in. I'm going to keep reading because I want us to get all the way through 2 Corinthians in this series. But but I'm going to hone in on this verse right here. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus. We know that. We believe that. We trust that. We live as if it's true. That's our future reality that we, we, we know without a doubt that that is our future. And then present us to himself together with you. And all of this, Paul reminds them, is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving. And God will receive more and more glory. Paul says that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits, our our inner self is being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small. Some of you, maybe this is a good verse to memorize this week. Our present troubles are small and won't last very long. I like to say from time to time to myself, Eternity's a long time. <laughs> eternity's a long time. Our, our, our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they are helpful because they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Paul says, so we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we, gaze our, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. He's talking about the future realities that are breaking into the present as the kingdom of God breaks in all around us. The, the, the things that we see now will soon be gone. It's part of the present age. It's passing away. But the things we cannot see... The future, it's breaking in. It's the kingdom of God, and it's going to last forever. We, we, we fix our gaze on that. And what Paul's going to do next now is he's going he's gonna to lean into some stuff he wants to teach the Corinthians. I don't know that it's as much of an issue for us, but I'm going to read through it. We know a lot of this because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the, the letter before this in the Bible. But he's going to go a step further with the resurrection. He's going to use two metaphors. I'll read through it. He's going to talk about a tent and a house, and then he's going to talk about clothing. But one of the things, and then he's going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. And you're going to want him to say more, but it's all he says. But, but the point of what he's going to do in these next ten verses is we're so sure, and we're going to come back to this, that the resurrection of Jesus makes our resurrection necessary and inevitable. That's what we're going to talk about. But Paul just goes the next step. And what the Corinthians are struggling with is they believe in the resurrection, but they think it's a disembodied resurrection. It's just your soul without any physical body. And for Paul, for for all Christians, what we know about the future, we've primarily learned from the resurrection body of Jesus himself. And Paul's like, Jesus had a body. We're all going to have a body. I mean, that's just how this works. We're in Christ. That's what's going to happen. And he's going to end. We're going to read through this. He's going to end with the judgment seat because he's trying to pastor them. And part of their false beliefs become a justification for how they're living in sin. And so they're like, oh, we're not going to have a body in the future. It's just our soul. So we can do whatever we want to our bodies. We can indulge our bodies in every way we want for pleasure because it doesn't matter. And Paul's like, yes, it does. Yes, it does. It absolutely matters. And you're going to stand before Christ and you're going to have to you're going to have to talk about what you did in your body. Because you're present by, there's, there's continuation and discontinuation. And we, we only know this from Jesus. People could recognize Jesus, but there was also something different about him. And that's that's about, there's a lot of mystery around this, but that's what we know. So I'll read it. So he says, for, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Again, this... Our, our present body is corrupted by sin, but when Christ returns, he's going to renew all things, and he's going to give us this heavenly body made of imperishable heavenly stuff, new creation. We do grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. So he's just flipping metaphors on us here. We're going we're to kind of overclothe ourselves. We will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. That's what he's trying to tell them. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. It's just that we want to put on our new bodies. We're ready for new creation so that these dying bodies will be, here we go, swallowed up by life, overwhelmed by life. And God himself has prepared us for this. We know, we're certain this is going to happen. And he's given us a guarantee, his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is the guarantee that this is all going to happen. And you've encountered the Spirit, so you know that you know that you know. That resurrection awaits you. Paul says, so we're always confident. Even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we're not at home with the Lord. We long for his return. But we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these. We long for Christ because then we'll be at home with the Lord, new creation. That's what we were made for. But whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is always to please him. And this is where he says, so we must stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good and evil we have done in this earthly body. Paul's just doing a little teaching there for the Corinthian church. What I want to do for us this morning with just a few more minutes here is hone in on the resurrection. It's a good day to remind ourselves of the resurrection. We're going to continue to talk about the weakness of Paul's ministry as we continue in the letter, but we're going to talk about the strength of our God. For Paul in the early church, the resurrection was an absolute certainty. It determined everything they thought and did. They simply knew that they knew that they knew that they would be raised from the dead. And if you're not afraid of death, then what do you have to be afraid of? Look, you your life is so secure in Christ, As a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in Jesus, your life is so secure in Christ, and the the resurrection is so certain that it should change how you live in the present. You don't have to secure your life anymore. It's already been secured by the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe it. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. We are raised with Jesus. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter 4. The Father will do this. He did it for the Son, He will do it for you. Our resurrection is absolutely inevitable, and the Spirit of God guarantees it. Paul argues for the necessity of our resurrection and the inevitability of our resurrection based on Christ's resurrection. If you want to read more about this, he's drawing on stuff he's already told the church. So go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll see that Christ is the first fruit. He set it all in motion. So there's no way it can't happen. Because, if you believe because Christ, is there's no way it can't It's inevitable. It has to happen. The, the wheel has already started and you cannot stop it. The Father has already raised Jesus and with him he will raise us. It's inevitable. But it's also necessary. You feel it. You know it. It's necessary because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us our last enemy is death. And as long as people who belong to God are held in death, it means the enemy still holds sway. But at the resurrection, death ceases to exist. It is swallowed up by life, Paul says. All those held in death's grasp are taken out, and therefore death ceases. Our resurrection is necessary, you could say, because God's character is at stake. Death is God's enemy. It's not what he let loose in the world. It's not part of his design. And so you and I must be raised from the dead. It's, it's necessary and it's inevitable. This earthenware jar of clay, this vessel will be transformed into a glorified, heavenly, spiritual, imperishable body. Supernatural body from heaven, made from heavenly stuff, even more real than what you and I are right now. In Second Corinthians, Paul is reminding us that the New Testament believers saw everything through this lens of the future. They were marked by these future realities. They were stamped by the resurrection. They were given the gift of the spirit, and for them, life was determined by the glories that were to come the future realities that they were already beginning to experience through the giving of the Spirit and through the presence of Jesus Christ. In other words, they didn't just sit around and hope and pray that they could hold out to the end because there were so many trials and so many tribulations. No, for them, as Paul says, this present momentary affliction doesn't even compare to the eternal weight of glory. And they've been touched by eternity. You've been touched by eternity. Believe it. Recognize yourself as one who by the coming of the Spirit has been stamped by eternity and marked with the glory of God. And, and, and trust with Paul that nothing can set that aside. It's true. Stamped by one reality, the resurrection of Jesus. It's happened. And God has set the future in motion. And we experience this light. we've been marked by eternity. So with Paul, we bear the death of Jesus so that the life of jesus might be might might be seen these eternal things what god is doing we are people who belong to the final glory paul is never making light of his present suffering it really hurts it's hard paul pushes himself to the limits for the sake of the gospel but paul believes something greater is going on god has stamped us with the weight of glory right now And even though this present body is decaying, there is something new going on through Christ Jesus. And that's our hope. And that's my prayer. That's where I want to kind of lead us into prayer here as we prepare for our final song this morning. But may we be a church that truly does believe, like if we're certain about anything, we're certain about the existence of God, we're certain about the love of God as revealed in Christ Jesus, And we're certain about the glory of the future that awaits us because of who our God is. Again, we're back to the beauty of the cruciform. If the God of all creation is willing to subject himself to the cross so that you and I can be rescued from our brokenness and our sin and and welcomed into his glory in these broken jars of clay, I mean, that's the character of our God. So let's trust in the goodness of the future that awaits us. Amen? All right, let's pray. My God, I, do, I, I confess that with so much of what we encounter just in the technological world that we live in, it is easy to get lost in the present and to be overwhelmed by the present it's easy actually to, to buy into some of the false narrative of Babylon and to only look at the painful past or the distracted present or, or even the anxious future. But Jesus, I believe this morning you're inviting all of us into your story. It's a different story. It's a, be- it's a more beautiful story. I mean, even Babylon knows it's beautiful. From time to time, it pops up here and there because it's just humanity understands the beauty of the love that we see in the cross amazing, this self-giving self-sac. I mean it just it speaks to our hearts because we were made in your image. And we pray that we would we would receive your love, we would learn from your love and we would look into a different future and that we would trust and that we would know that yes, there are momentary afflictions. We talk the talk of a crucified Messiah and we walk the walk. Some of our pain is just from being in a broken world, and some of our pain is because we confess you as Lord. But we believe that what awaits us is worth it. That there is this unbelievable treasure, the weight of glory. We want more of that. We are compelled by your beauty, Jesus. Would you continue to make us a cruciform church? In your name we pray.